It demands that we tell sinners the whole truth. We will not go quietly into the night. Christian Cornerstone Podcast. Hey, everybody. Uh, welcome to another episode of the Cornerstone Podcast of IE Radio, uh, Reformed Radio. Um, getting in today, we have, uh, we're going to be going over some uh, questions and answers. Uh, this is something we'll be doing uh, probably about once a month to get some feedback from our audience and also help you out, help you uh, build more of a, a grounds uh, within your Christian faith. Now, before we get started, I'd like to remind you, if you guys do enjoy these broadcasts, please do consider becoming a supporter. You can support us multiple ways. Follow us on Facebook, share it on Facebook, uh, YouTube as well, uh, and even supporting this ministry financially. Uh, all of these will be a great asset as to the establishment of this ministry uh, and the ongoing work. So uh, feel free to do that. You can uh, support us by going to ChristianCornerstone.org. Uh, now getting into this again today is uh, question and answers with uh, myself and the lovely Byron Gilroy. How are you doing today, my friend? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing all right. And I have to say this heat is terrible. Yeah, it's 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 uh, absolutely it's frying me from the inside out. Oh yeah, I mean you, sure. you're you're down in Texas, and uh, I got a friend of mine in Texas. I believe I've uh, shared this with you, and they sent me a picture. I don't know. Yesterday, I think is what it was, and then the whole heat index fell like 110, and I was like, oh my yeah. goodness! It's like I got to deal with that at work in a plastic factory. So I mean, it's nuts. But uh, yeah, so uh, today uh, is our first episode getting into some uh, quick questions and answers. Uh, really just pulled these out of a hat, I think. Um, and then we'll, uh, we'll go ahead and uh, get started on this, and uh, we'll see if we can't get some uh, individuals um, chiming in with their own curiosity to help slow down the list. <laughs> okay. So, All right. So uh, why don't you fire off the first question? Yeah, the first question here, I think this is really a common one. Uh, individuals might have is, you know, the translation, what translation should I read or even what translation should be the best? Mm. Um, I think that's a pretty huge question. And uh, there's a couple different ways we, we, we can take this uh, and feel free to, you know, throw in your input on this. Number one, uh, it should be a translation that was translated by more than just, just one person. Uh, for example, the paraphrase message Bible, I personally do not recommend that. Um, I, I, I don't even feel that, that, that should be detestable. Yeah. I don't even feel that should be on the shelf, but I mean, I guess to get a, a brief understanding, perhaps, you know, as a starter, but I would not recommend a person uh, yeah. keep hold of that for too long. Um, another one here is uh, I think we should also make sure it's a language that's understood. For example, the King James um, I've had some people say it's a beautiful language. You know, once you get through it and everything, you can, you, right. and yes, if you read enough, you can understand it, but it's very difficult for me personally to get past. Um, right. so I personally would recommend there's a translation. Let me see if I can't reach this. Okay. So there's a translation I have, uh, and this was my first study Bible. And it's actually called the, uh, I don't even know if it's what the complete uh, name of this is. Let's see here. The uh, Compass uh, Compass Study Bible. There's uh, the front there. Hmm. 
And uh, it's just a great book. Uh, it's one of my first study Bible. It is my first study Bible, and it's very wonderful. It's the voice translation. Uh, I believe it's translated in 2012, if I remember right. Um, that's my personal recommendation of where an individual could start. Uh, it's very wonderful. Uh, modern language. Uh, they do add words in italics uh, to let you know that they're adding those words in there and they don't necessarily belong. Um, but my preference would be uh, ESV would be uh, a good one to go with. Uh, what about you? What's, what, what translation do you end up using? Well, okay. So there, I have a couple of, there's a couple of things that I use as a, as a criteria for determining a translation that I want to use. Um, first off, uh, there's two types of translations that, that we typically find in modern, uh, in modern translations. One is uh, more uh, paraphrastic, uh, like, you, like you talked about. Um, there's also ones that are more conceptual. So it's from, when you go from the Greek, um, you don't, you're not necessarily translating a one-to-one -one correspondence, but more of the idea. Mm -hmm. And so the ideas are translated. Um, not, not a big fan of the pair. Uh, well, I'm a big fan of the paraphrastic. If you're going to use the NIV, um, the NIV is, um, is a great one to, to take to church. Um, and, uh, to follow along with the pastor and stuff like that. Awesome. Great. Now, if you're serious about your study in the word of God, um, which you should be, um, if you're serious about that, then you're not going to want to go with more of a, you're not going to want to go with a paraphrastic translation. You're going to go with a more literal translation. Um, so two thing, two, uh, translations that fall in my mind. Uh, that are good are the NASB um, and the ESV. Um, so those are the, those are two. I personally I use both. Uh, I will use the NASB when I am in uh, when I'm doing exposition, um, and then I will use uh, uh, I'll use the ESV for Bible studies and stuff like that. Yeah, um, and. And so I'll teach out of the ESV, but I study out of the NASB. See, and for me, I mean, I'd have to stick with one. I like when I, I have the ESV right now. That's what I'm using. And I transitioned about a year ago from the voice. Uh, and that was very difficult. I can tell you that much. Um, I, I mean, it's always good. It's always good to have multiple translations to compare. Yes. Um, and I think it helps to give you a better understanding as far as what the text is saying. Um, so, uh, I, I'd have to agree with you on there is, uh, my preference would be to, you know, read from one, but, um, you know, just really have additionals available to, to help. I mean, like the voice translation, for example, that I was saying, if you're talking to new believers or young believers, then I think a translation like that would be good to give to them or, or read from to help give them that understanding. Um, well, and the, the reason I will always say, t I'll always say multiples, um, is because you have to you have to also remember that our translations are translations of translations, which are translations of translations, which are translations of translations. So from the original translation, right? Right, and and, and, and yeah, right, right. So so we we have to understand that um, 
that even the autographs that we have, or even the the manuscripts that we have, right, are um, uh, are in somewhat translations of the original autographs. Right. Um, so so we so the reason I do I do multiple is because we want to in our in our reading and in our teaching. Um, my goal is always to get to the meaning of the text. Now, if I'm just reading, I will read the ESV. Um, but I guess I'm talking more about study. Mm. When you're studying, when you're doing a Bible study, I encourage all to have multiple translations uh, so that way you can, it's part of the tool of hermeneutics to be able to get to a better understanding of what the original author intended. Right. Yeah. All right, so we got a question here from uh, Gregory. Um, we'll share this and then go ahead and share uh, your your uh, next question here. Uh, Gregory right. says, I recently came across the Church of Christ, and they say you must be baptized to be saved. I mentioned the thief on the cross, and they said I can't use that because he was still under the law. The love uh, they love, Act, Acts 2.38, and a lot I can defend that with... Acts 10, um, and, you know, I was asking what our take is on this. So okay. I, go ahead, and uh, if you want to uh, throw two cents in. No, why don't you take the first step? Let me give it some, uh, let me give it some thought. Yeah, I would say, um, Gregory, I would say that you are absolutely right on this. Um, let me open up my Bible to uh, Acts, but the idea of the thief on the cross is absolutely true. Um I think that's a good argument to really affirm that you do not have to be baptized um, in order to be saved, at least in the sense of being baptized by water. Um, that is alone a outward physical profession of an internal change of heart. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, if which most likely they're not. If the church of Christ was saying that you have to be baptized by the spirit to be saved, then yes, that is true. Um, but yes, the, the thief on the cross is a very good example uh, as far as uh, the need or the, the lack thereof to be uh, baptized by water in order to be saved. Well, and, and Gregory, I would also, I would also add that, you know, um, the, the, the simple answer um, we are told very. We are very. We are told very specifically uh, what man needs to do to be saved, right? And uh, that is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Um, so, what what is um, what is missing from there are any other criterion for being saved? Uh, we have believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. Um, so anytime somebody comes to you, anytime somebody comes to you and, and talks about, well, don't you believe that you have to be baptized to be saved or you have to do this to be saved? Um, we, we really don't have any other further consideration that needs to be done because we know that salvation is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Period. End of discussion. That's over. Now, here, here's here's the another another nuance to this baptism thing. Um, one, uh, I I have Anglican friends 
Um, I have Anglican friends that uh, believe uh, that regeneration, uh, which as reformed believers, we would say is the initial part of salvation. It's regeneration and then it's faith. Um, but that regeneration happens in baptism. Uh, so they find it, a, uh, Anglicans will find it a salvific thing, um, but not, salva not salvation. Um, so there, there, are, there are different views on how baptism is, is, taught, uh, is understood, but by no means would we, uh, should anybody be saying uh, that you have to be baptized in order to be saved. Uh, because otherwise we have a we have a genuine contradiction with scripture. Right. Now, my question on that, uh, Byron, your opinion is if somebody takes the absolute stance on that to, to say that you absolutely have to be baptized, what is your take on that? Is that something that you would you, you know still associate with them as a brother of Christ? Or would you see that more as a works-based um false religion concept i would see it i would see it as as work as as work based um i would have to say that it would be it would be false teaching um uh, because it's adding to the gospel right right um and and so anytime that we're adding to the gospel um you you you're in danger of um you're in danger of apostasy um so uh, as far as disassociating with them, um, I'm not. I'm not sure. I would work to correct the understanding. Mm -hmm. uh, I would have multiple dialogues uh, just to see the breadth and the scope of the belief um, where that doctrine touches other doctrines. Yeah, I'd also add on that. I think the whole disassociating. I think that would also be on a case by case. Which actually, that's one of the questions. We'll I'll dis we'll discuss this more if we if we get to that question. So, all right. Um, uh, I guess the next question here is yours. Uh, does knowledge require certainty? Yeah. Um, does knowledge require certain? This is a question that I get all the time. Uh, and specifically from atheists. Uh, because we live in a, um, we live in a scientific, a scientism uh, world. Um, where where science uh, and their epistemology is known for, uh, they set, let me say it that way, they set the epistemology for understanding knowledge. Um, well, the, the short answer here is no. Uh, no, knowledge does not require certainty. Um, because we have... We have knowledge about uh, about many things that we are not certain of, right? Um, for example, uh, the belief that there are other minds, right? And that you are not some type of, uh, you're not the only human being that's projecting and that's projecting a, uh, um, a hologram all around you and you're interacting with kind of AI type of, uh, of, of situation. We're in the matrix. Right. So um, we, we don't have, we know that there are other minds. We, we know that. Um, but can we have absolute certainty 
on that? No, because but knowledge doesn't re, knowledge doesn't require um, require that. Um, we can think of the the. Uh, we can also you know look at the idea behind um, you know sense sense perception. Right, we can we can trust our senses, and we can know uh, certain things about the external world through our senses. Um, now, are we always certain about it? Well, no, we're not always certain about it because you have uh, you have uh, mirages that appear in hot sun of puddles of water, right? Um, or um, you can stick a you can stick a stick in water or an ore and it looks bent. Um, well, see, that's like evidence enough that we're in the matrix, don't you think? I mean, if the water is off in the distance from the hot sun, it's evaporating too quick for us to get to. You stick a, a you stick a, a stick in the water and it's bent. There's your whole, you know, there's a glitch in the matrix. Yeah, absolutely. But see, <laughs> but, but what we what we know. What that demonstrates is that we don't, we trust our senses. So when I see a tree, I know that the tree is there, right? But it doesn't require certainty that the tree is there for me to know that. Right. Yeah. You don't um, have to go up and touch it and dissect it to know that it's there. Right. And and certainty, uh, let's, let's understand that certainty really can't be given outside of mathematics, um, mathematics can give you a, a level of, uh, a higher level of certainty than, um, than any other discipline. When we talk about the existence of God, right? We don't talk about, we don't talk about certainty, but we do talk about that it is more probable than its alternative. Right. 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 Um, so, so really what, what we need to do is knowledge requires uh, and I'm going to say this kind of tongue in cheek. Knowledge requires pro uh, probability um, that one alternative is more probable than the uh, than it, than its opposite. So, no, knowledge does not require certainty for those for those reasons. Yeah, and there's um, a piece here. Let me see if I can't pull a diagram together. This is going to be a makeshift thing. Um, I think this was uh, this was explained some time ago um and uh the idea for this was that uh the individual created a circle and they were asked to um put a pie slice on this circle and uh you know as just a, a person's personal preference as far as how much they absolutely know about everything that that exists so you got that pie slice right there, and it's going to be a. I just put this on a sticky note here, but you got this pie, sl pie slice of this is what you know, and you know to an atheist, you know if they were to make that slice there, okay, out of every all the knowledge in the world, this is what I know, and then the question was raised to that if you can you know check this out, and all that knowledge that's in that pie slice that you claim to know, is it possible that God exists outside of that? So, I mean, just because we don't have a full knowledge of something, like you said, it doesn't necessarily mean it uh, doesn't exist. But I think that's a really good example there. Uh, bad drawing, of course. But, well, well, and let's look at it. Let's look at it in terms of skepticism, right? Because a lot of skeptics will use uh, will use this knowledge uh, equals certainty um, 
type of criteria to shoot down believers. Um, and so if you think about what skepticism is claiming to know and saying that we can't know certain things, to, to say that you can't know implies that you have some sort of knowledge. Uh, because one th the one thing you do know is that you don't know. You know, so so whatever you're whatever you're denying, you have to have knowledge of uh, you have to have knowledge of it in order to deny it. So all of skepticism is really uh, when it comes to the knowledge aspect is very, very self-defeating. And they get themselves tied up in a worm web that it, they can't they can't get out of. Right. Yeah. All right. Um, so the next question here. Um, is uh, again, this is this is a couple of these that came up. This is um, these were given on one of the pages I'm following online, and I thought this one was rather interesting. I I personally was a little bit against it. Um, the answer I'd give, I was against it. Say you know, no, they don't exist. But you know, as this is initially, but then you know, get into a further understanding. Yes, it is real. It does exist. The gift of prophecy does it exist? Um, or do profits exist? There's a couple different ways, I guess, is what you would want to take this. Um, number one, where's my notes? Number two is we you have to uh, ask ourselves, what is the primary role of a prophet? And it was essentially to deliver the message from God to the people. Um, so being that that's the case, you also have to take into consideration that the Bible itself, as we know it, um, either one didn't exist or the individuals only had partial prints. They didn't have the full text, uh, even with the Old Testament, as it's being written, of course. So God has to deliver his message, uh, his word to the people somehow. Uh, and you know, in this case here in the Old Testament, it have to be from uh, some sort of divine action. Um, vision for an example. So, um, and then from that, the prophet would then speak what was told to them to the people, the word of God to the prophet, to the people. And I think that's an important diagram. I guess we can call that to, to uh, throw in there. So in that sense, yes, a prophet does exist. Is there new prophecy? I think that's important to throw in there. Uh, no, uh, I do not believe, I personally do believe, uh, people can, uh, still have visions. However, it does and should align with what's already been written, uh, within the scripture. It's not, not as a means of, I had a vision, you know, you're going to come into contact with a couple million dollars or a new Ferrari or something like that. Um, but it always, it always should come back to what's already been written down. Uh, now being that the prophet's role was a simply a messenger of God. Uh, yes, we do have prophets today. Uh, we have the word of God uh, from Genesis to Revelation. There's the prophecy, the quote unquote vision that's been laid out for us. Um, and then now we have the role of the prophet. That's the man standing in the pulpit every Sunday. He's not necessarily going to have some supernatural gift and see visions all the time but he does have the word of God in front of them. His job is to take what's been written down in the word of God and to properly explain it to the people. So uh, the gift of prophecy in that sense, yes, uh, I do believe it does exist. Um, it is the minister professing the word of God that has been given to us uh, within, the, within the pages of the Bible. 
um, but it is not a means of visions of the future, I would say. Right. Now, I, I, would, I would definitely add that um, the, the weightiness of this question should not be overlooked. Um, and what I mean by that is that if you are going to answer this in the affirmative, um, that, uh, that yes, there are prophets today, like there were in the new, the new Testament or in the old Testament, or like John the Baptist was in the new Testament, um, which I would really argue that, um, all the way up from, uh, up until the, uh, up until the Lord's Supper, or the last, uh, the last Supper, I would say that all of that was the Old Testament, and the New Testament starts after the Last Supper. Um, but um, if you're going to say that there are prophets like there like there were in the Old Testament, um, I would then challenge you on uh, your view of the sufficiency of Scripture. Uh, can you repeat that? We had a little bit of a connection issue there. Okay. If you do believe that there are um, that there are prophets like there were in the Old Testament, that there is a then I would challenge you on the sufficiency of Scripture um, because the Scripture is very uh, very very clear that we have been given. Uh, we have been given the apostolic teaching that was once and for all delivered to the saints. And that comes in the form of the word of God. We have Jesus's statement uh, in John 548. I believe it's 548. Jesus statement 548, where he tells the, he tells the Pharisees or the Jews, the religious, leaders, he tells them, he says, um, I'm a paraphrase here, but but he says you you study the law, uh, in, or you study the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life, um, and then all the way at the at the very end he says if you have believed Moses, then you would have believed me, because Moses wrote about me. Um, so so I, I mean the. What's really at stake here is not just an office of the church or a gift, a spiritual gift, but what's at stake here in, in the way that you answer this is the sufficiency of Scripture and its role that it plays in your own life. Right. Yeah. I'd have to agree with that. Uh, the only thing, and I think it's preference myself, uh, the idea of the uh, what you're saying about the Old Testament taking place and you know, the New Testament, you're saying the Lord's Supper. I think it can go either way. Um and I, I wouldn't call myself, uh, I, I wouldn't be absolute on this. Um, I would think it starts with when Jesus comes and begins his teaching. However, the Holy Spirit does come at Pentecost and you know he promises to the disciples at Lord's Supper of what's going to happen. So uh, it's also possible that the New Testament historically uh, begins there as well. So um, the specific trans transition, that's, I don't think that's specifically... Um, I don't think that needs to be absolute. Although I'm, I'm not like arguing against uh, what you were saying. That's just my preference, right there. No, I, I agree. And, and the reason I say that is because we have, you know, the new testament, the new covenant. 
Um, we have the institution of the new covenant there at the Last Supper. This is the uh, this is my new covenant established in my blood. Oh, that's what you're saying. And, and so the new covenant doesn't start when Jesus is born. The new covenant starts when at the Lord's Supper when He establishes the new covenant. Okay. So therefore, the New Testament. Yeah, I, I got you there. So he's. he's to a certain degree, he's delivering the paper saying, this is what we're going to do now. Yes, absolutely. Okay. All right. Yeah, I, I got you there. Okay. So the uh, next question, I believe this one is your, this one, I really had to look this up and I still don't even understand the concept. I don't like the terminology itself was throwing me off. How is the belief in God properly basic? Yes. Uh, yes. Yeah, this is a, this is a fun one. This is a fun one. Um, so, um, what, just out of curiosity, before I kind of go into this, um, what did you what did you find, and what are your thoughts on what you found? Well, um, I started. Uh, I can't remember what it was. Um, I started watching a video. This uh, a gentleman was asking the same question, and the terminology, like, and that's what I always struggle with. You, you, earlier today um, in the show, you're saying epistemology. That's a terminology. Uh, ter the terminologies themselves is some that I, I deal with. It's like, okay, which one's which? That's that's my problem. Can we use basic English here? That'd be really helpful. Okay. So, <laughs> um, and, and that's where I was coming into play here. Um, properly basic. I was like, I've never heard that phrase um, be said before. Um, I can't really say I came across too much because I watched this video and I was like, you know what? My brain's kind of hurting. You've got like this scholar here giving a scholarly answer. You've got this other guy here using the same terminology as new to me. Let's just go ahead and wait for Byron to give me an answer. Okay. So that's where I was right there. Okay. All right. So, uh, so the, the issue of proper basicality and I'm going to look down cause I have, I have notes because I can get off on this subject and I could actually close out the show just talking about okay. the proper basicality of, uh, of belief in God. So I'm using an outline so that way I do a short answer. Okay. Um, so what were, um, this, is a, this is a project of uh, Alvin Plantinga. And what Alvin Plantinga wants to show is that there is no good reason to think that the Christian belief uh, or the Christian faith is unjustified, irrational, or unwarranted. Okay, so that's that's what's at stake in planning of putting this forward. Now, this follows this follows under another umbrella called reformed epistemology. And so, reformed epistemologists are going to be those people uh, that. Um, that find like myself that find the existence of God's uh, the arguments for the existence of God. They find them, uh, they find them helpful and they're useful tools, uh, but they're not required for belief um, or for. Uh, I don't have to if I'm asked why do you believe uh, or you have to justify your belief in God. No, I don't because it's properly basic. Now here's what properly basic means. Properly basic means that it relies on no other evidence 
for the claim. So for example, um, one plus one equals two, right? That is a, that is properly basic. There's, you can say one plus one equals two and you need no other justification for one plus one equals two. You just say it. Um, so the same thing here uh, in reformed epistemology is saying that I can say belief in, uh, that I believe in God, and that is a properly basic term. There's no other justification that needs to be given. Um, so, in other words, you're saying here you don't need the evidence for it to be true. That is correct. Okay. That is correct. So, on Plantinga's view, belief in God um, can be properly basic because, uh, because um, that belief is not inferred by any other basic evidence. It's just what it just what it is. So there's two uh, there's two tenets that he has, and then I'm gonna stop here. Okay, there's two tenets that he that he has. Uh, Plantinga says that if only one self, um, well, let me say it this way. Uh, let's go here. Uh, well, he gives two reasons why you, you don't want to reject proper basicality is because if one, uh, if only self-evident and incorrigible propositions are properly basic, then we are all irrational since we commonly accept numerous beliefs that are not based on evidence uh, and that are neither self-evident or incorrigible. I mean, they're not, they're not deniable. They're, they're not deniable. Uh, and two, the proposition only beliefs that are self-evident or incorrigible are properly basic um, is not itself properly basic. It, it does require evidence to say that only propositions, uh, only beliefs that are self-evident are, are, um, uh, are properly basic. That, that requires evidence, so it's not properly basic. Uh, therefore, if we are to believe this proposition, we must have evidence that is true, but there is no such evidence, so it's self-defeating. So the very idea of a properly basic statement and the very idea of the belief in God as being properly basic is that um, it just requires it requires zero evidence okay. for it. And, and the reason why we can go there is because of the authenticating witness of the Holy Spirit. Right. There's a, I ought to talk to you more about that in a minute. Cause I, I, there's something interesting I learned. Um, uh, I've been listening to some sermons, uh, which I'll talk to you about this uh, after. It's just a little fun fact I uh, came across. Um, so, okay. So this next question here is um, again, this, uh, this actually comes from a friend of mine. First uh, Corinthians 5, 15, 33 tells us that bad company corrupts good morals. And I believe that it's actually quoted from uh, Proverbs. I remember right. Um, so the question is, based on this verse, does this mean I should separate myself from non-believers? I would say this is a case-by-case -case basis. Um, uh, I, there's a, a few ways I'd, I'd give this. Um, myself, for an example, uh, years ago, I actually stepped away from my family uh, for about two years. And um, I didn't really talk to them much. Uh, and, and I felt that it was because of my uh, my Christian beliefs. I felt that was what I was supposed to do. 
I can give you a whole bunch of uh, verses to, to really support that. Um, however, um, it was beneficial to my own spiritual growth. Um, at that time, I, you know, I, I would not personally advise making an absolute choice to, okay, you're a non-believer, so I've got to leave, you know, step away from you. But it was beneficial to my spiritual growth. And I, I can say I'm truly blessed by uh, what came out of that. Um, biblically speaking, um, there is a time in which we should step away from non-believers, um, but it is not all the time. I actually, again, I had a, a coworker who actually asked me this question. He had a friend of his that's a, a Christian, and he did the same thing, stepped away from that relationship completely. Um, I think I think we should first, one, analyze, are we being influenced? Uh, a non-believer, you know, whatever they're involved in, is what they're involved with in uh, sinful, and is it influencing me to take those steps into sin as well? If you can answer that with a yes, then you need to step back from that relationship a little bit and surround yourself um, with uh, believers who can help help with your ongoing growth of uh, sanctification. Um, however, so in one sense, yes, we should separate ourselves from non-believers. Um, and the fine print there, if they influence us into sinfulness as well. Uh, the flip side is, no, we should not. Uh, and again, case by case, I, I have to stress that so much because I don't want to end up throwing anybody off and you know getting them confused with what I'm saying here. Uh, 1 Corinthians 5, I think, is, is probably one of my favorite examples. Um, that's, um, I'm trying to go off of memory. I'm not going to go off memory. I'm at the book right now. First Corinthians chapter five is about a man who's uh, essentially sleeping around with his stepmother. And um, Paul closes up the chapter here with this, uh, says in verse uh, 11, first uh, Corinthians chapter five, 11. But I am, I am now, I am writing you uh, to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. If he is guilty of sexual morality, greed, idolater, reveler, drunkler, swindler, and so on, do not even eat with such a person. So Paul is essentially addressing those within the church. Um, if somebody is in church, they identify as a believer, but yet they're living this con consistent lifestyle that shows lack of evidence that this person is a believer. And in fact, they are a false believer. These are the people in which we should avoid. And I think this really goes back to the same principle in which why he's saying to cast this person out of the church is because uh, in a hopes, it's one, to purify the church, one, to protect the church, uh, and two, that's three, and three, to um, hopes that the individual themselves would really come to their senses and repent of their sin. Um, so there's a, there's a, it's a case-by-case -case basis on who um, we should step away from as regards to relationship um, and who we should not. Uh, another argument that we could throw in there is that Christ himself uh, spent time with sinners. And his purpose, of course, was to deliver the ministry, uh, the, the word of God, the gospel. So um, as Paul says in the beginning of this here, uh, before that, I believe, let me uh, find this specific verse. Um, oh, in verse, uh, the previous verse, he says, uh, not at all, meaning the sexual immoral, sexually immoral of this world. So he's separating those who are sexually immoral within the church and those who are outside of the church. Um since you would need to go out of the world. So if you're wanting to avoid the non-believer 100%, you've got to be taken out. So 
Um, again, uh, my conclusion here uh, before I continue repeating myself is that it's a case-by-case basis on if and when uh, we should disassociate ourselves from the non-believer. Yeah, I would agree. All right, we have a question here, uh, another one from Gregory. What is the difference between God's permissive will and his pre and predeterminism? Go ahead, Bill. Oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> um, well, I would say, hold on, let me read this again. God's, uh, the difference between God's permissive will and his predetermined will. So what's essentially set in stone, this is absolute, this is what God's going to have in play, and as well as go ahead, little children, this is, uh, you know, I'm going to essentially be, was a, uh, how do we want to word this here? I'm, I'm downgrading it to my own understanding here. Uh, permissive will, help me out here. That would be um, allowing the Christian to do certain actions, correct? Well, it, I mean, his permissive will is, is what he, yeah, what he allows. Okay. Um, what he allows to happen. So I would say evil is yeah. in his permissive will. I would say uh, uh, yes, uh, and I think, and I, I would probably, you know, going back to, um, I'd probably throw in the free will concept here. Um, I personally don't believe, I believe we have free will to a certain point, um, to the point of obedience. Do we choose to obey or disobey? That's the, the I would say that's the free will, um, and obviously the one who has been regenerated by the Spirit really only is really the only person that has the ability to obey. Um, I think that's really all I have right there. I mean, I, I'm not too sure. I've never been answer, asked that question before, so I can't really give you a full, uh, full explanation so, on that. So, so the permissive will of God would encompass his, um, would encompass, uh, all that he allows, all that he, uh, all that he allows, um, is, um, is found within that. Um, because there's nothing, because the inverse would be uh, would be demonstrably false to say that um, things happen without God knowing. Um, that completely undermines one of the uh, fundamental t- um, attributes of God that He is all knowing. He's omniscient, right? So we we have to, in our understanding, and please. Please understand that when you're thinking about this, that it is a human conception uh, that has that makes these distinctions. I don't think these distinctions are in the mind of God. Um, but um, so in His again, in His permissive will, all things are uh, that that happen that come to pass. Um, he He allows it. Even evil. Yes, God allows evil. All right. So now uh, predeterminism, um, what he has decreed. um, Now that is something that is something uh, entirely different. Uh, For example, when it comes to salvation, um, this is what those that are going that are in the Lamb's Book of Life have been predetermined before he's already decreed that to happen before the foundations of the world. Um, so there is God's permissive will and there's God's decrees. Um, and what his decrees, what he has decreed, for example, creation um, is, 
is going to happen no matter what. Um, and then really you could say even the permissive will, um, what he allows is, is only allowed because he allows it. Um, not anything that humans have are able to do to change the mind of God or, uh, to switch, you know, um, uh, to switch his direction and how he's going to go. Uh, so I would think about instead of predeterminism, I would say the decrees of God uh, and then um, the man's responsibility really is what his permissive will is. Uh, because going to the free will thing that you talked about, Bill, going to that, you know, we all know we have free will, right? Because we make decisions, right? We, right. we make decisions on what shirt to wear or what school to go to or what girlfriend to have. We make those decisions. Um, now, whether those decisions are good or bad are dependent upon how they reflect uh, or how they fall in line with the word of God and how they reflect on him. Um, but the problem, the problem is not free will. The problem is, is that our wants, our want tos are completely broken, right? It is our desire. It's our natural desires that make sin possible um, because yes, we have free will, but we don't desire those things that are good. We desire enmity with God. We desire, um, we, we desire the dark instead of the light. So that would be my answer to that question. Okay. Uh, one thing I want to add, I remember I was talking to a, a friend of mine about this uh, earlier today. Um, the uh, Job, uh, Christ, uh, not Christ, uh, God's conversation with Job and uh, permitting yeah. him to um, mm -hmm. go ahead and really ruin Job's life. We'll just leave it at that. Um, that alone, I think that's a good example there uh, that I'd like to throw in there um, of God's permissive will. Mm -hmm. um, because God, I mean, he, he is omnipotent. He knows how everything's going to turn out. Satan himself yeah. is not. He's bound to what God has given him and, you know, in his creation and right. his sovereign power. So uh, Satan himself, you know, he goes up into the council of the Lord and he says, well, you know, I've been wandering around this earth and, you know, uh, he said, well, actually, let me uh, go over that. I just had that up uh, earlier today. Um, in uh, John or Job uh, chapter two, verse three was specific uh, that was given. Uh, what that says here is, um, well, here, I'll start with verse 1, and we'll stop at 3. It says, Again, there was a day when the sons of God uh, came into the presence of the Lord himself, and Satan also came among them to prevent himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, Where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, For going to and fro on the earth and walking up and down it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? And there is none like him on the earth, blameless and upright, and who fears God and turns away from evil. He still holds fast and holds fast in integrity, although you entice me against him to destroy him without reason. So this alone, this uh, this uh, verse three, I think that really is a, a little bit of an insight to this is not the first time God had to deal with Satan in regards to Job. Um, for whatever has happened in the past from this point on, or from this point, is that Satan himself was essentially poking the stick at God, you know, here, I'm going to prove you wrong. Uh, and God, you know, says, it's like, well, here's Job, you know, he's, he's a righteous man. You know, what do you have with him? So um, Satan himself is given permission 
by God to, or, or I wouldn't necessarily say, he is given permission by God to mess around with Job, you know, screw his life up. Um, that alone sounds, you know, pretty upsetting. And we're not going to go into a full study on this, but the bottom line is why is, why is God permitting this to happen? It's because there's two reasons. One, I mean, you can read it through the text of Job. Um, you can clearly see towards the end um, that it's one to humble Job. You know, were you there at the beginning? Were you there when I created everything? You know, I, uh, I am the one that was there. I'm the one that did everything. You're not. You're human. So I think it's a point to it's it's to humble Job in the sense of recognizing just you know what kind of man he truly is, as well as another sense to make the point to Satan. That regardless of what you do to my child here, he is still mm-hmm. to remain loyal to me. Right. Um, and we see that. And I, again, that would be a permissive will. It's, you know, in our perspective, we'd see that as so how can a loving God allow this to happen? Well, he's a sovereign God as well. So, um, you know, we're just the to a certain point. I wouldn't I don't want to stress this too much, but to a certain point, we're just the puppets that are there to worship him. Um, mm-hmm. So. uh uh, sounds a little dark you now that I think about it. You know, putting it that way. No, I mean, uh, Scripture says that we're we're the jars. We're there are some vessels made for righteousness and some others for wrath. So you kind of give it. You, you give it. You actually make it sound better than what the Scripture makes it sound. All right, I'll take yeah. jar. But yeah, I mean, so we. Uh, I think even the calamities themselves, this, this is under the, his permissive will. This is all for the glory of God. And that's one thing, both his permissive will and the predetermined, uh, as you said, the decrees, those, yep. all of it's for his glory. I mean, there's really Absolutely. no way around that, whether we like it or not. So yep. um, this next question, I believe is yours. Uh, what is the cra- I mean, you and your whole scholarly stuff going on here. <laughs> what is the criterion for good arguments? Okay, put that one up, and that one was actually understandable. I'll give you that much. <laughs> well, I mean, the the argue, the criteria for uh, good arguments is, um, uh, well, let me let me just say it. it's it's understanding logic. Uh, it's understanding how to present an argument. So, for example, a a a good deductive argument, or when his when uh, the premises. Are um, are not only true, but they are valid. Um, so you can't have a good argument if your argument or if your premises, if the statements, the propositions, if they are false. Um, uh, the other thing is that if your if your initial premises don't, if your conclusion doesn't follow from your initial premises, um, then that is a bad argument because you're stating two facts and then you're drawing a conclusion from those two facts that doesn't follow. Um, so just, just sound. And again, we don't have time to go into a, a course on logic, but um, just understanding the basics of the basics of logic um, and how premises work uh, in relation to conclusions and how we use those to formulate uh, an argument. For example, one of the big fallacies that you'll find is begging the question. Okay. And now a lot of people will throw this out and it aggravates the nerve out of me when they, when they say this, 
but they're like, well, you're begging the question and then they'll go on. But the, we don't use that properly. So let me give you an example of a, a syllogism, which is a, a, a formalized argument. Let me give you an example of, a be, of begging the question. Premise one, so the first statement, either God exists or the moon is made out of green cheese. Two, the moon is not made out of green cheese. Three, therefore, God exists. That is begging the question. And what question is being begged, which, which is being begged, is that this argument already assumes in its premises the conclusion. It already, it's already assuming that God exists. Um, so it says either God exists, which is an assumption that one of two things are, are the case that the moon is made of green cheese, or that God exists. So it's assuming God's existence already, and then arguing from that conclusion, and then drawing another conclusion. That is bad argumentation, and that is what is called begging the question. And Arminians beg the question all the time. They beg the question because they assume their conclusion and their arguments. So anyway. Can you give an example that, on that? Huh? Uh, Armenian argument. Can you give me an example there? Uh, well, uh, that um, they believe that. Um, oh wow! Let me pick one. <laughs> so Can you come back to that one. No, no. So, so they they believe, for example, um, that belief um, is required. Uh, or the that our that our believing the gospel is uh, is up to us, right? Okay. Yeah. Uh, so, um, but they won't. But they but they won't say. Um, so they argue they'll argue that that's from God, but their intention, what they're assuming, um, or what they're not wanting to to state that they're assuming, but they're assuming that belief is is not or belief is a work right so they assume they assume that belief is is a is a work now a lot of them will not say that because they can't say that belief is a work because if they say belief is a work then it's then arminianism is works righteousness right um which it is uh it is uh but um but that's that's one way and I, I could frame it into a syllogism, but that's one way in which uh, it's just bad argumentation. Okay. All right. So uh, we'll close up with this last question here. Uh, then we'll, again, we'll save the these other questions here. We got like three more questions. Uh, we'll we'll save those for um, the uh, our next one, which is a couple couple of weeks from now. I think is what they'll be. We'll we'll discuss right. that. Um, okay. So this next question here. Um, again, I don't even remember where this uh, this came from. I think this was another page, but uh, do apostles exist today? And what is the best argument? Uh, this alone, I think, is a long, uh, I think it could go into a discussion. Um, but the best examples I would give um, would be, one, discussing the role in which they played. Um, number one, they were students of the God-man, uh, Christ himself on earth, three years of ministry, equipping him right then and there. And uh, the apostles were also a, 
want to say the, I would say to a degree, I would call them the founding fathers uh, of Christianity. Um, they, they were equipped by God himself and commissioned directly while the commission itself does apply to us as well. Uh, they were commissioned directly to go out and make disciples. Um, and on the principle of Christ being the Christ, um, Christ is saying, you know, I will build my church and these, uh, apostles, I'm kind of exaggerating on this, I think, but I'm going to go with it anyways. It helps to explain a little bit more, but they essentially extended this. They, they built the physical church and, and spiritual church on the principle or Christ specifically did that he is, uh, the Christ, um, yeah, I'm going off on a tangent there, way off in the direction I was wanting to go. Um, back on track here. The role of the apostle was simply to um, use divine, I would say use divine miracles to affirm that these individuals, referring to the apostles, were in fact called and sent by God uh, to deliver the message. This is one of the big things you have to have at that point in time. In a sense, on a worldly term, you have a new religion. Um, so you'd have to have some means of affirmation. The apostles themselves, they had supernatural abilities we do not have today. Um, from this point, I don't have any verses on here, do I? Let me see this here. No, I don't. I completely missed this question. Um, if I'm going off, please let me know because my brain's kind of going a couple different ways. Um, What's the other piece here? So, so I would, I would, yeah. I would say, <laughs> I would say that uh, do apostles exist today? Yes. Why? <laughs> exactly. In what sense? The word apos, uh, uh, apostolos um, means a, a an it can mean an emissary. It can mean a messenger. Um, so, in the sense that we all bear the message of the gospel to a lost and dying world. We are apostles. Okay. We are messengers of the gospel. So yes, in a very uh, broad sense, in a very broad sense, apostles exist today because we're going out um, and, and proclaiming the message. Um, are there apostles in the narrow sense as what build Bill, what you defined, uh, people that walked with Jesus, that saw the living Christ, um, thinking of Paul, um, uh, are, are there apostles like that? No. No, there are not. Yeah. Um, I so, think um, I'd have to agree with you on that. I think um, I would say with that explanation, I would say, yes, the apostles do exist. Uh, like you're saying. However, I think the reason it's such a huge issue is because when we say that the apostles exist today, um, our minds are also saying that, okay, the apostles did these works. So if the apostles exist in this in the world today, then we should be able to do these works as well. Um, that's not necessarily true. Again, we'll save that for another discussion. We're running short on time. Um, I would think for the safety of the other individuals, perhaps even the, the, I would say the lesser understanding, um, new believers, simply for the sake of their understanding um, to prevent them from going off and you know coming up with some sort of heresy related, um, it would be best to simply stay with the word uh, of the minister. 
uh, which in a sense is the same as, you know, we're all called uh, from what you're saying there is to be apostles, to go out and minister, deliver the word of God and so on. Likewise, every Christian is also a minister. Is that, you said that was the same wording, wasn't that? What's, what is the uh, apostle? Uh, emissary, ambassador. Um, okay. So yeah. different wordings, but essentially the same to a certain point, the same, same role would be taking place there. Okay. All right. Yeah. Um, that is uh, really all the time uh, we have uh, for these questions. I'll apparently have to prepare my personal notes a little bit better. I didn't really feel too up to par with that last one. Um, but uh, that's all the questions we can uh, get through right now. We've got a couple more questions. Uh, if you have any other questions, let us know. We'll get to them uh, in our next episode. I'm actually working on, uh, Byron, I'll share this with you as well. Uh, I'm working on uh, putting a page together in which people can uh, submit questions, um, you know, an email. Uh, so that will that'll end up putting us, uh, help to put together a little bit of a list uh, that is currently not available. We'll probably promote that next time. Um, as far as what's up. But again, if you have any questions, let us know. Byron, um, I want to thank you. Do you have any other comments you'd like to toss in there before we kind of close this up? I will see you all next week. All right. Thank you. All right, everybody, that is uh, our show. And I want to thank you guys for chiming in. Uh, Gregory, uh, thanks for throwing those questions. Uh, it's great to have some interaction. Uh, for anybody who is watching these or watching these videos, listening to the articles, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, let us know. Go to ChristianCornerstone.org. You can also go to our Facebook page and get a hold of us that way. Feel free to support us, like, share, subscribe, uh, financially support this ministry if you're capable. Uh, your financial contribution will help offset the current costs of this ministry, as well as help with the ongoing work and the establishment of the ministry as well. So without further ado, I want to thank you guys uh, for uh, a wonderful, a wonderful show. You guys have yourself a very uh, wonderful night and God bless.